Chapter Thirty Nine of The Hidden Hand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget. The Hidden Hand by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter Thirty Nine. Cap frees the captive. Hold, daughter, I do spy a kind of hope, which craves as desperate an execution, as that is desperate which we would prevent. And if thou darest, I'll give thee remedy. Hold, then, go home. Be merry, give consent. To Mary Paris. Wednesday is tomorrow. Shakespeare. As the autumn weather was now very pleasant, Capitola continued her rides, and without standing on ceremony, repeated her visit to the hidden house. She was, as usual, followed by Wool, who kept at a respectful distance, and who, during his mistress's visit, remained outside in attendance upon the horses. Capitola, luckily, was in no danger of encountering Colonel Lenore, who, since the night of the mysterious tragedy, had not returned home. But had gone to and settled in his winter quarters in Washington City. But she again met Craven Lenore, who, contrary to his usual custom of accompanying his father upon his annual migrations to the metropolis, had upon this occasion remained home in close attendance upon his cousin, the wealthy orphan. Capitola found Clara the same sweet, gentle, and patient girl, with this difference only, that her youthful brow was now overshadowed by a heavy trouble. Which could not be wholly explained by her state of orphanage or her sorrow for the dead. It was too full of anxiety, gloom, and terror to have reference to the past alone. Capitola saw all this, and trusting in her own powers, would have sought the confidence of the poor girl, with the view of soothing her sorrows and helping her out of her difficulties. But Miss Day, candid upon all other topics, was strangely reserved upon this subject, and Capitola, with all her eccentricity, Was too delicate to seek to intrude upon the young mourner's sanctuary of grief. But a crisis was fast approaching which rendered further concealment difficult and dangerous, and which threw Clara for protection upon the courage, presence of mind, and address of Capitola. Since Clara Day had parted with her betrothed and had taken up her residence beneath her guardian's roof, she had regularly written both to Travers at St. Louis and to his mother at Staunton. But she had received no reply from either mother or son, and months had passed, filling the mind of Clara with anxiety upon their account. She did not for one moment doubt their constancy. Alas, it required but little perspicacity on her part to perceive that the letters on either side must have been intercepted by the Lenors, father and son. Her greatest anxiety was lest Mrs. Rock and Travers, failing to hear from her, should imagine that she had forgotten them. She longed to assure them that she had not, but how should she do this? It was perfectly useless to write and send the letter to the post office by any servant at the hidden house, for such a letter was sure to find its way, not into the mail bags, but into the pocket of Colonel Lenore. Finally, Clara resolved to entrust Honest Cap with so much of her story as would engage her interest and cooperation, and then confide to her care a letter to be placed in the post office. Clara had scarcely come to this resolution ere, as we said, an imminent crisis obliged her to seek the further aid of Capitola. Craven Lenore had never abated his unacceptable attentions to the orphan heiress. Day by day, on the contrary, to Clara's unspeakable distress, these attentions grew more pointed and alarming. At first she had received them coldly and repulsed them gently, but as they grew more ardent and devoted, she became colder and more reserved, until at length, By maintaining a freezing heart cheer at variance with her usually sweet temper, she sought to repel the declaration that was ever ready to fall from his lips. 
but notwithstanding her evident abhorrence of his suit. Craven Lenore persisted in his purpose, and so one morning he entered the parlour, and finding Clara alone, he closed the door, seated himself beside her, took her hand, and made a formal declaration of love and proposal of marriage, urging his suit with all the eloquence of which he was master. Now Clara Day, a Christian maiden, a recently bereaved orphan, and an affianced bride, had too profound a regard for her duties toward God, her father's will, and her betrothed husband's rights, to treat this attempted invasion of her faith in any other than the most deliberate, serious, and dignified manner. I am very sorry, Mr. Lenore, that it has at length come to this. I thought I had conducted myself in such a manner as totally to discourage any such purpose as this, which you have just honoured me by disclosing. Now, however, that the subject may be set at rest for ever, I feel bound to announce to you that my hand is already plighted, said Clara gravely. But, my fairest and dearest love, your little hand cannot be plighted without the consent of your guardian, who would never countenance the impudent pretensions which I understand to be made by the low-born young man to whom I presume you allude. That engagement was a very foolish affair, my dear girl, only to be palliated on the ground of your extreme childishness at the time of its being made. You must forget the whole matter, my sweetest love, and prepare yourself to listen to a suit more worthy of your social position, said Craven Lenore, attempting to steal his arm around her waist. Clara coldly repelled him, saying, I am at a loss to understand, Mr. Lenore, what act of levity on my part has given you the assurance to offer me this affront. Do you call it an affront, fair cousin, that I lay my hand and heart and fortune at your feet? I have called your axer by its gentlest name. Under the circumstances I might well have called it an outrage. And what may be those circumstances that convert an act of adoration into an outrage, my sweet cousin? Sir, you know them well. I have not concealed from you or my guardian that I am the affonsade bride of Dr. Rock nor that our troth was plighted with the full consent of my dear father, said Clara, gravely. Tut, 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 my charming cousin, that was mere child's play, a schoolgirl's romantic whim. Do not dream that your guardian will ever permit you to throw yourself away upon that low-bred fellow. Mr. Lenore, if you permit yourself to address me in this manner, I shall feel compelled to retire. I cannot remain here to have my honoured father's will and memory, and the rights of my betrothed, insulted in my person, said Clara, rising to leave the room. No, stay, forgive me, Clara. Pardon me, gentlest girl, if in my great love for you I grow impatient of any other claim upon your heart, especially from such an unworthy quarter. Clara, you are a mere child, full of generous but romantic sentiments and dangerous impulses. You require extra vigilance and firm exercise of authority on the part of your guardian to save you from certain self-destruction. And some day, sweet girl, you will thank us for preserving you from the horrors of such a mace alliance, said Craven Lenore, gently detaining her. I tell you, Mr. Lenore, that your manner of speaking of my betrothal is equally insulting to myself, Dr. Rock, and my dear father, who never would have plighted our hands had he considered our prospective marriage a mace alliance. Nor do I suppose he ever did plight your hands, well in his right senses. Oh, sir, this has been discussed before. I beg of you to let the subject drop for ever, remembering that I hold myself sacredly betrothed to Traverse Rock, and ready, when at my legal majority, he shall claim me, to redeem my plighted faith by becoming his wife. Clara, this is madness. It must not be endured, nor shall not. 
I have hitherto sought to win your hand by showing you the great extent of my love, but be careful how you scorn that love, or continue to taunt me with the mention of an unworthy rival. For though I use gentle means, should I find them fail of their purpose, I shall know how to avail myself of harsher ones. Clara disdained reply, except by permitting her clear eye to pass over him from head to foot, with an expression of consuming scorn that scathed him to the quick. I tell you to be careful, Clara Day. I come to you armed with the authority of your legal guardian, my father, Colonel Lenoir, who will forestall your foolish purpose of throwing yourself and your fortune away upon a beggar, even though to do so he strain his authority and coerce you into taking a more suitable companion, said Craven Lenoir, rising impatiently and pacing the floor. But no sooner had he spoken these words than he saw how greatly he had injured his cause, and repented them. Going to Clara, and intercepting her as she was about to leave the room, he gently took her hand, and, dropping his eyes to the floor, with a look of humility and penitence, he said, "'Clara, my sweet cousin, I know not how sufficiently to express my sorrow at having been hurried into harshness toward you, toward you whom I love more than my own soul, and whom it is the fondest wish of all my heart to call wife. I can only excuse myself for this.' or any future extravagance of manner by my excessive love for you, and the jealousy that maddens my brain at the bare mention of my rival. That is it, sweet girl. Can you forgive one whom love and jealousy have hurried into frenzy? Mr. Lenore, the Bible enjoins me to forgive injuries. I shall endeavor, when I can, to forgive you, though for the present my heart is still burning under the sense of wrongs done toward myself, and those whom I love and esteem, and the only way in which you can make me forget what has just passed will be never to repeat the offence. And with these words Clara bent her head and passed from the room. Could she have seen the malignant scowl and gesture with which Craven Lenore followed her departure, she would scarcely have trusted his expressions of penitence. Lifting his arm above his head, he fiercely shook his fist after her and exclaimed, Go on, insolent girl, and imagine that you have humbled me, but the tune shall be changed by this day month, for before that time whatever power the law gives the husband over his wife and her property shall be mine over you and your possessions. Then we will see who shall be insolent, then we shall see whose proud blue eye shall day after day dare to look up and rebuke me. Oh, to get you in my power, my girl! Not that I love you, moon-faced creature, but I want your possessions, which is quite as strong an incentive. Then he fell into thought. He had an ugly way of scowling and biting his nails when deeply brooding over any subject, and now he walked slowly up and down the floor, with his head upon his breast, his brows drawn over his nose, and his four fingers between his teeth, gnawing away like a wild beast while he muttered, "'She is not like the other one. She has more sense and strength. She will give us more trouble. We must continue to try fair means a little longer.' It will be difficult, for I am not accustomed to control my passions, even for a purpose. Yet penitence and love are the only cards to be played to this insolent girl for the present. Afterwards, here his soliloquy muttered itself into silence. His head sank deeper upon his breast. His brows gathered lower over his nose, and he walked and gnawed his nails like a hungry wolf. The immediate result of this cogitation was that he went into the library and wrote off a letter to his father, telling him all that had transpired between himself and Clara, and asking his further counsel. He dispatched this letter and waited an answer. 
During the week that ensued before he could hope to hear from Colonel Lenore, he treated Clara with marked deference and respect. And Clara, on her part, did not tax his forbearance by appearing in his presence oftener than she could possibly avoid. At the end of the week the expected letter came. It was short and to the purpose. It ran thus. Washington, December 14th, 18. My dear Craven, you are losing time. Do not hope to win the girl by the means you propose. She is too acute to be deceived, and too firm to be persuaded. We must not hesitate to use the only possible means by which we can coerce her into compliance. I shall follow this letter by the first stagecoach, and before the beginning of the next month, Clara Day shall be your wife, your affectionate father, Gabriel Lenore. C. Lenore, Esquire, Hidden House. When Craven Lenore read this letter, his thin white face and deep-set eyes lighted up with triumph. But Colonel Lenore huzzahed before he was out of the woods. He had not calculated upon Capitola. The next day Colonel Lenore came to the hidden house. He arrived late in the afternoon. After refreshing himself with a bath, a change of clothing, and a light luncheon, he went to the library, where he passed the remainder of the evening, in a confidential conference with his son. Their supper was ordered to be served up to them there, and for that evening Clara had the comfort of taking her tea alone. The result of this conference was that the next morning, after breakfast, Colonel Lenore sent for Miss Day to come to him in the library. When Clara, nerving her gentle heart to resist a sinful tyranny, entered the library, Colonel Lenore arose and courteously handed her to a chair, and then, seating himself beside her, said, "'My dear Clara, the responsibilities of a guardian are always very onerous, and his duties not always very agreeable, especially when his ward is the sole heiress of a large property, and the object of pursuit by fortune-hunters and maneuverers, male and female.' When such is the case, the duties and responsibilities of the guardian are augmented a hundredfold. Sir, this cannot be so in my case, since you are perfectly aware that my destiny is, humanly speaking, already decided, replied Clara, with gentle firmness. As, how, I pray you, my fair ward? You cannot possibly be at a loss to understand, sir. You have already been advised that I am betrothed to Dr. Rock, who will claim me as his wife upon the day that I shall complete my twenty-first year. Miss Clara Day, no more of that, I beseech you. It is folly, perversity, frenzy. But thanks to the wisdom of legislators, the law very properly invests the guardian with great latitude of discretionary power of the person and property of his ward, to be used, of course, for that ward's best interest. And thus, my dear Clara, it is my duty— while holding this power over you, to exercise it for preventing the possibility of your ever, either now or at any future time, throwing yourself away upon a mere adventurer. To do this, I must provide you with a suitable husband. My son, Mr. Craven Lenore, has long loved and wooed you. He is a young man of good reputation and fair prospects. I entirely approve his suit, and as your guardian, I command you to receive him for your destined husband. Colonel Lenore, this is no time for bated breath and whispered humbleness. I am but a simple girl of seventeen, but I understand your purpose and that of your son just as well as though I were an old man of the world. You are the fortune-hunters and maneuverers. It is the fortune of the wealthy heiress and friendless orphan that you are in pursuit of. But that fortune, like my hand and heart, is already promised to one I love, and to speak very plainly to you, I would die ere I would disappoint him or wed your son, said Clara, with invincible firmness. 
"'Die, girl! There are worse things than death in the world,' said Colonel Lenore, with a threatening glare. "'I know it, and one of the worst things in the world would be a union with a man I could neither esteem nor even endure,' exclaimed Clara. Colonel Lenore saw that there was no use in further disguise. Throwing off, then, the last restraints of good breeding, he said, "'And there are still more terrible evils for a woman than to be the wife of one she can neither esteem nor endure.' Clara shook her head in proud scorn. "'There are evils to escape which such a woman would go down upon her bended knees to be made the wife of such a man.' Clara's gentle eyes flashed with indignation. "'Infamous!' she cried. "'You slander all womanhood in my person.' "'The evils to which I allude are comprised in a life of dishonor,' hissed Lenore through his set teeth. "'This to my father's daughter!' exclaimed Clara, growing white as death at the insult." Ay, my girl, it is time we understood each other. You are in my power, and I intend to coerce you to my will. These words, accompanied as they were by a look that left no doubt upon her mind that he would carry out his purpose to any extremity, so appalled the maiden soul that she stood like one suddenly struck with catalepsy. The unscrupulous wretch then approached her and said, I am now going to the county seat to take out a marriage license for you and my son. I shall have the carriage at the door by six o'clock this evening, when I desire that you shall be ready to accompany us to church, where a clerical friend will be in attendance, to perform the marriage ceremony. Clara Day, if you would save your honor, look to this. All this time Clara had neither moved, nor spoken, nor breathed. She had stood cold, white, and still, as if turned to stone. Let no vain hope of escape delude your mind. The doors will be kept locked. The servants are all warned not to suffer you to leave the house. Look to it, Clara, for the rising of another sun shall see my purpose accomplished. And with these words the atrocious wretch left the room. His departure took off the dreadful spell that had paralyzed Clara's life. Her blood began to circulate again, breath came to her lungs, and speech to her lips. O oh Lord, she cried, O oh Lord, who delivered the children from the fiery furnace, deliver thy poor handmaiden now from her terrible foes. While she thus prayed, she saw upon the writing-table before her a small penknife. Her cheeks flushed, and her eyes brightened as she seized it. This, this, she said, this small instrument is sufficient to save me. Should the worst ensue, I know where to find the carotid artery, and even such a slight puncture as my timorous hand could make would set my spirit free. Oh, my father, oh, my father, you little thought, when you taught your Clara the mysteries of anatomy, to what fearful use she would put your lessons. And would it be right— Oh, would it be right! One may desire death, but can anything justify suicide? Oh, Father in heaven, guide me, guide me, said Clara, falling upon her knees, and sobbing forth this prayer of agony. Soon approaching footsteps drew her attention, and she had only time to rise and put back her damp, disheveled hair from her tear-stained face, before the door opened, and Dorcas Knight appeared and said, Here is this young woman come again. "'I declare, Miss Day,' said Cap, laughing, "'you have the most accomplished, polite, and agreeable servants here that I ever met with. "'Think with what a courteous welcome this woman received me. "'Here you are again,' she said. "'You'll come once too often for your own good, and that I tell you.' "'I answered that every time I came it appeared to be once too often for her liking. "'She rejoined, "'The Colonel has come home, and he don't like company, "'so I advise you to make your call a short one.' I assured her that I should measure the length of my visit by the breadth of my will. But, good angels, Clara, what is the matter? 
"'You look worse than death!' exclaimed Capitola, noticing for the first time the pale, wild, despairing face of her companion. Clara clasped her hands as if in prayer, and raised her eyes with an appealing glance into Capitola's face. "'Tell me, dear Clara, what is the matter? How can I help you? What shall I do for you?' said our heroine. Before trusting herself to reply, Clara gazed wistfully into Capitola's eyes, as though she would have read her soul. Cap did not blanch, nor for an instant avert her own honest gray orbs. She let Clara gaze straight down through those clear windows of the soul, into the very soul itself, where she found only truth, honesty, and courage. The scrutiny seemed to be satisfactory, for Clara soon took the hand of her visitor, and said, "'Capitola, I will tell you. It is a horrid, horrid story, but you shall know all. Come with me to my chamber.' Cap pressed the hand that was so confidingly placed in hers, and accompanied Clara to her room, where, after the latter had taken the precaution to lock the door, the two girls sat down for a confidential talk. Clara, like the author of Robin Hood's Barn, began at the beginning of her story, and told everything, her betrothal to Traverse Rock, the sudden death of her father, the decision of the orphan's court, the departure of Traverse for the far west, her arrival at the hidden house— the interruption of all her epistolary correspondence with her betrothed and his mother, the awful and mysterious occurrences of that dreadful night when she suspected some heinous crime had been committed, and finally of the long, unwelcome suit of Craven Lenore, and the present attempt to force him upon her as a husband. Cap listened very calmly to the story, showing very little sympathy, for there was not a bit of sentimentality about our Cap. "'And now,' whispered Clara, while the pallor of horror overspread her face, by threatening me with a fate worse than death, they would drive me to marry Craven Lenore. "'Yes, I know I would,' said Cap, as of speaking to herself, but by her tone and manner, clothing these simple words, and the very keenest sarcasm. "'What would you do, Capitola?' asked Clara, raising her tearful eyes to the last speaker. "'Marry Craven Lenore, and thank him, too,' said Cap. Then, suddenly changing her tone, she exclaimed, I wish, oh, how I wish, it was only me in your place, that it was only me they were trying to marry against my will. What would you do? asked Clara earnestly. What would I do? Oh, wouldn't I make them know the difference between their sovereign lady and Sam the Lackey? If I had been in your place, and that dastard Lenore had said to me what he said to you, I do believe I should have stricken him dead with the lightning of my eyes. But what shall you do, my poor Clara? "'Alas, alas, see here, this is my last resort,' replied the unhappy girl, showing the little penknife. "'Put it away from you, put it away from you,' exclaimed Capitola earnestly. "'Suicide is never, never, never justifiable. God is the Lord of life and death. He is the only judge whether immortal sorrows are to be relieved by death, and when he does not himself release you, he means that you shall live and endure.' That proves that suicide is never right. Let the Roman pagans have said and done what they pleased. So no more of that. There are enough other ways of escape for you. Ah, what are they? You would give me life by teaching me how to escape, said Clara fervently. The first and most obvious means that suggests itself to my mind, said Cap, is to run away. Ah, that is impossible. The servants are warned. The doors are all locked. I am watched. Then the next plan is equally obvious. Consent to go with them to the church, and when you get there, denounce them, and claim the protection of the clergyman. Ah, dear girl, that is still more impracticable. 
The officiating clergyman is their friend, and even if I could consent to act a deceitful part, and should go to church as if to marry Craven, and upon getting there denounce him, instead of receiving the protection of the clergyman, I should be restored to the hands of my legal guardian, and be brought back here to meet a fate worse than death, said Clara, in a tone of despair. Capitola did not at once reply, but fell into deep thought which lasted many minutes. Then speaking more gravely than she had spoken before, she said, there is but one plan of escape left, your only remaining chance, and that full of danger. Oh, why should I fear danger? What evil can befall me so great as that which now threatens me? said Clara. This plan requires on your part great courage, self-control, and presence of mind. Teach me, teach me, dear Capitola, I will be an apt pupil. I have thought it all out, and will tell you my plan. It is now eleven o'clock in the forenoon, and the carriage is to come for you at six this evening, I believe. Yes, yes. Then you have seven hours in which to save yourself. And this is my plan. First, Clara, you must change clothes with me, giving me your suit of mourning, and putting on my riding habit, hat and veil. Then leaving me here in your place, you are to pull the veil down closely over your face, and walk right out of the house. No one will speak to you, for they never do to me." When you have reached the park, spring upon my horse and put whip to him for the village of Tip-Top. My servant, Wool, will ride after you, but not speak to you or approach near enough to discover your identity, for he has been ordered by his master to keep me in sight, and he has been forbidden by his mistress to intrude upon her privacy. You will reach Tip-Top by three o'clock, when the Staunton stage passes through. You may then reveal yourself to Wool, give my horse into his charge, get into the coach, and start for Staunton. Upon reaching that place, put yourself under the protection of your friends, the two old physicians, and get them to prosecute your guardian, for cruelty and flagrant abuse of authority. Be cool, firm, and alert, and all will be well. Clara, who had listened to this little Napoleon in petticoats, with breathless interest, now clasped her hands in a wild ecstasy of joy, and exclaimed, I will try it, O Capitola, I will try it. Heaven bless you for the counsel." Be quick, then, change your dress, provide yourself with a purse of money, and I will give you particular directions how to make a shortcut for Tip-Top. Ha, ha, ha! When they come for the bride, she will be already rolling on the turnpike between Tip-Top and Staunton. But you, oh, you, my generous deliverer! I shall dress myself in your clothes, and stay here in your place to keep you from being missed, so as to give you full time to make your escape. But you will place yourself in the enraged lion's jaws— you will remain in the power of two men who know neither justice nor mercy, who in their love or their hate fear neither God nor man. O oh, Capitola, how can I take an advantage of your generosity, and leave you here in such extreme peril? Capitola, I cannot do it. Well, then, I believe you must be anxious to marry Craven Lenore. O oh, Capitola! Well, if you are not, hurry and get ready. There is no time to be lost. But you, but you, my generous friend— Never mind me, I shall be safe enough. I am not afraid of the Lenores. Bless their wigs, I should like to see them make me blanch. On the contrary, I desire above all things to be pitted against these two. How I shall enjoy their disappointment and rage! Oh, it will be a rare frolic! While Capitola was speaking, she was also busily engaged doing. She went softly to the door, and turned the key in the lock, to prevent any one from looking through the keyhole, murmuring, as she did it, I wasn't brought up among the detective policemen for nothing. Then she began to take off her riding habit, 
Quickly she dressed Clara, superintending all the details of her disguise as carefully as though she were the customer of a new debutante. When Clara was dressed, she was so nearly of the same size and shape of Capitola that from behind no one would have suspected her identity. "'There, Clara, tuck your light hair out of the way, pull your cap over your eyes, gather your veil down close, drop your figure, throw back your head, walk with a little springy sway and swagger, as if you didn't care a damson for anybody.' "'And there! I declare no one could tell you from me!' exclaimed Capitola in delight, as she completed the disguise and the instructions of Clara. Then Capitola dressed herself in Clara's deep mourning robes, and then the two girls sat down to compose themselves for a few minutes, while Capitola gave new and particular directions for Clara's course and conduct, so as to ensure as far as human foresight could do it, the safe termination of her perilous adventure." By the time they had ended their talk, the hall clock struck twelve. There, it is full time you should be off. Be calm, be cool, be firm, and God bless you, Clara. Dear girl, if I were only a young man, I would deliver you by the strength of my own arms, without subjecting you to inconvenience or danger, said Cap gallantly, as she led Clara to the chamber door, and carefully gathered her thick veil in close folds over her face, so as to entirely conceal it. Oh, may the Lord in heaven bless and preserve and reward you, my brave, my noble, my heroic Capitola, said Clara fervently, with the tears rushing to her eyes. Bosh, said Cap, if you go along doing the sentimental, you won't look like me a bit, and that will spoil all. There, keep your veil close, for it's windy, you know. Throw back your head, and fling yourself along with a swagger, as if you didn't care, ahem, for anybody. And there you are, said Cap pushing Clara out, and shutting the door behind her. Clara paused an instant to offer up one short, fervent prayer for her success and Capitola's safety, and then following her instructions went on. Nearly all girls are clever imitators, and Clara readily adopted Capitola's light, springy, swaying walk, and met old Dorcas Knight in the hall, without exciting the slightest suspicion of her identity. "'Humph!' said the woman. "'So you are going. I advise you not to come back again.' Clara threw up her head with a swagger, and went on. "'Very well. You may scorn my words, but if you know your own good, you'll follow my advice,' said Dorcas Knight, harshly. Clara flung up her head and passed out. Before the door, Wool was waiting with the horses. Keeping her face closely muffled, Clara went to Capitola's pony. Wool came and helped her into the saddle, saying, "'You're does right, Miss Cap, to keep your face kivered. It's awful windy, ain't it, though? I can scarcely keep the har from lowin' off my head.' With an impatient jerk after the manner of Capitola, Clara signified that she did not wish to converse. Wool dropped obediently behind, mounted his horse, and followed at a respectful distance, until Clara turned her horse's head, and took the bridle-path toward Tip-Top. This move filled poor Wool with dismay. Riding toward her, he exclaimed, "'Deed, Miss Cap, you must excuse me for speaking now. Where de mischief is you're a-goin' to?' For all answer, Clara— feigning the temper of Capitola, suddenly wheeled her horse, elevated her riding-whip, and galloped upon Wool in a threatening manner. Wool dodged and backed his horse with all possible expedition, exclaiming in consternation, "'Dar, dar, Miss Cap, I won't go for to ax you any more questions. No, not if you're ride straight to Old Nick or Black Donald.' Whereupon, receiving this apology in good part, Clara again turned her horse's head and rode on her way. Wool followed, bemoaning the destiny that kept him between the two fierce fires of his old master's despotism and his young mistress's caprice, and muttering, "'I know old Mars and dis young gale am goin' to be the death of me. 
I knows it just as well as nothin at all. I clare to man, if it ain't nuff to make anybody go heave themselves right into a gristmill and be ground up at once. Wool spoke no more until they got to Tip-Top, when Clara, still closely veiled, rode up to the stage office, just as the coach, half filled with passengers, was about to start. Springing from her horse, she went to Wool and said, "'Here, man, take this horse back to Hurricane Hall. Tell Major Warfield that Miss Black remains at the hidden house in imminent danger. Ask him to ride there and bring her home. Tell Miss Black when you see her that I reached Tip-Top safe, and in time to take the coach. Tell her I will never cease to be grateful. And now, here is a half-eagle for your trouble.' "'Good-bye, and God bless you.' And she put the piece in his hand, and took her place in the coach, which immediately started. As for Wool, from the time that Clara had thrown aside her veil, and began to speak to him, he had stood staring and staring, his consternation growing and growing, until it had seemed to have turned him into stone, from which state of petrification he did not recover, until he saw the stage-coach roll rapidly away, carrying off whom? Capitola, Clara, or the evil one?' Wool could not have told which. He presently astounded the people about the stage-office by leaving his horses, and taking to his heels after the stage-coach, vociferating, "'Murder! Murder! Help! Help! Stop, thief! Stop, thief! Stop the coach! Stop the coach!' "'What is the matter, man?' said a constable, trying to head him. But Wool incontinently ran over that officer, throwing him down, and keeping on his headlong course, hat off, coat-tail streaming, and legs and arms flying like the sails of a windmill, as he tried to overtake the coach, crying, "'Help! Murder! Head the horses! Stop the coach! Old Mars told me not to lose sight of her. Oh, for heaven's sakes, good people, stop the coach!' When he got to a gate, instead of taking time to open it, he rolled himself somersault-like right over it. When he met man or woman— Instead of turning from his straight course, he knocked them over and passed on, garments flying, and legs and arms circulating with the velocity of a wheel. The people whom he had successively met and overthrown in his course, picking themselves up and getting into the village, reported that there was a furious madman broke loose, who attacked every one he met. And soon every man and boy in the village who could mount a horse started in pursuit. Only racehorses would have beaten the speed with which Wool ran, urged on by fear. It was nine miles on the turnpike road from Tip-Top that the horsemen overtook and surrounded Wool, who, seeing himself hopelessly environed, fell down upon the ground and rolled and kicked, swearing that he would not be taken alive to have his eyelids cut off. It was not until after a desperate resistance that he was finally taken, bound, put in a wagon, and carried back to the village, where he was recognized as Major Warfield's man, and a messenger was dispatched for his master and not until he had been repeatedly assured that no harm should befall him, did Wool gain composure enough to say, amid tears of cruel grief and fear, "'Oh, Marsers, my young missus, Miss Black, done been captured and bewitched, and turned into somebody else, right afore my own two-looking eyes, and gone off in dat coach. Deed she is, and old Mars kill me. Deed he will, Jemin. He went and ordered me not to take my eyes off her, and no more I didn't. But what good that do?' when she turned to somebody else, and went off right afore my two-looking eyes. But old Mars won't listen to reason. He'll kill me. I know he will, whimpered Wool, refusing to be comforted. End of chapter 39